Thank you, Aaron. Thank you all for being here. It's so fun to see you. And uh, one of the things you may have noticed is that uh, I always love doing this. I feel like a rock star. Like Axel Rose. Um, one of the things you may have noticed is in those uh, welcome bags, you got a copy of this new book that I wrote. And uh, I'm going to speak a little bit about it. I'm going to read a little bit about it. Um, but I just wanted to say that if you, uh, you're not gonna, you might have deja vu in a few days when you read uh, some of these passages. So I've tried to make it so that I'm not repeating too much of the, what's in that book. The book is called Seculosity, How Career... It's kind of a musical word I'm finding. Of course, like one of my friends, like he, he, he picked it up and the first thing he says, Seculosity? How about Succulosity? He said... So I've made that joke first. When you see it on Amazon, it comes from the horse's mouth. Um, so here it goes. Uh, a few years ago, uh, as we were thinking about writing, uh, I was thinking about writing this book. I was reading an interview with Russell Brand. Do you guys know who Russell Brand is? He's a he's a very perceptive stand-up comedian slash actor. The parents in the room will want to know that he is the voice of Dr. Nefarious in the uh, Despicable Me movies. But he's also, uh, you know, um, forgetting Sarah Marshall, he's this kind of crazed Englishman who speaks with a Cockney accent and just wrote a book about recovery from addiction. And he's very interested in spirituality and religion. But And he was interviewed uh, by The Guardian because, you know, today... Uh, uh, stand-up comedians have become our new priests, I think. In, in, uh, if you watch stand-up comedy these days, it's not very funny. It's, but it's very, uh, as Norm MacDonald says, stand-up comedians used to want to be the funniest person in the room. Now they want to be the smartest. That's a different story. Russell Brand actually is super smart, and he's awesome. And The Guardian was asking him why he wrote a book about recovery. He's, they think he's supposed to write funny books. Why write a book about people's addictions? And he said, there's an ongoing sense that this, modern life, isn't working. He says, there was an important job, there was an important job that religion was doing, but because of X, Y, or Z, we have, rightly or wrongly, rejected it. He's speaking in an English context, remember. He says, but the secularization, materialization, and individualization of the way we see the world now excludes us. Uh, from a life that has meaning. And I don't think pop culture can fill that gap. I don't think art can do it anymore. Things are getting too serious. People need to connect with something that is essential and beautiful and valuable and true. And so I'm going to read you a little story about my attempts on my own steam to connect with that. It's 2016 and I'm approaching the counter at our local cell phone supplier. The guy manning the desk had clearly seen my kind before, a little on edge, determined to say his piece before losing his nerve, not unlike a, a high school kid asking out a prom date. The clerk, though, did not hesitate. He nodded, took my iPhone into custody, made a couple of entries in his computer, and issued me a brand new flip phone. All of a sudden, it was 2005 again. Trigger pulled, I took a breath and asked how many other similar models he had sold this month. More than you'd think, he replied. It wasn't quite the pat on the back that I was hoping for. I had not come lightly to the decision to abandon my smartphone. The polite explanation had to do with uh, wanting a little bit more mental space. 
The honest truth was that I didn't have the self-restraint not to check the thing at every stoplight and during every trip to the bathroom. Even watching television had become a two and usually three screen experience. What sealed the deal was when our four-year-old drew a picture of everyone in the family and took extra care to place a phone in my hand. I mean, that felt the opposite of good. Phone calls and text messages were not the problem. I couldn't handle having the internet in my pocket. I'd come to rely on the affirmation and distraction it provided on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. Affirmation of my enoughness and distraction from my not-enoughness. Seculosity lurked behind every click. There's that word, seculosity. Megan O'Geeblin, one of my favorite essays, essays today, she wrote in the Paris Review, of all places, a couple of uh, months ago. She says, as more and more Americans leave religious belief behind, instead of becoming purely rational agents, we increasingly displace those religious enthusiasms on other things. She kind of nailed the book there. Seculosity is simply a combination of the word religiosity and secular. I, I designed it as a catch-all for sort of religious feeling and devotion and sentiment that is directed at earthly rather than heavenly objects. And I think we know instinctively what I'm talking about. But seculosity is actually my answer to the question of why it is we are currently so anxious, lonely, divided, and exhausted. And that answer is that we are too religious about too many things. That we may be sleeping in on Sunday mornings, but we've, we've never been more pious. Religious observance hasn't faded along with quote-unquote secularization. It's migrated because the marketplace in replacement religion is booming. To the extent that I say we're seldom not in church today, but not the good kind of church. The church that tells you to optimize, to produce, to improve, to be better, to make it count. But what do I mean by religion? Because it's important to define that term here. I think there is such a thing as capital R religion, which is what we've just been doing together, I think, which is, and, and you can refer to Christianity and, and Islam and Judaism. There's, but there's small r religion, which is simply what we lean on to tell us we're okay, that our lives matter. Our, our functional religion is simply another name for the, whatever ladder it is that you are spending your t life and your, your days climbing towards some dream of wholeness. Your religion is simply your preferred guilt management system. It is the justifying story of your life. So your religion, my religion, our religion, is that which we rely on not just for meaning or hope or community, but enoughness, what most religious people would call righteousness. This, this desire for righteousness, for enoughness, uh, you know, uh, it is at the, the exact center, I think, of the human spirit. It's how, I think, I believe it's how God created us. But, you know, if you don't take my word for it, look at social psychologist Jonathan Haidt, who wrote a whole book called The Righteous Mind, which is all about how the drive for to feel righteous is something that is not non-negotiable in human life. 
So why is it that we seem more fixated on righteousness, on enoughness, than any time in recent memory? Well, at the risk of gross oversimplification, for centuries we relied on capital R, religion, to tell us we're okay. Church provided a place for us to go with our guilt and shame. And even though it constantly failed in its calling and its mandate to be the, the, the local forgiveness person, is how Steve, Stephen Paulson, the theologian, puts it. Your, your, your minister, your pastor was your local forgiveness person. They were your hope dealer. <laughs> they, didn't always, they didn't always live up to that, but that's what they were in theory. But for more and more people in the modern world, for whatever reason, that no longer feels like an advisable or available option. Our confidence in some of the religious narratives we've inherited has collapsed. Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor, who you, you can hear about a lot if you, if you listen to talks about religion these days, or you read columns about it, he's lurking behind a lot of what people think. He wrote a book called The Secular Age. It's a wonderful book. And he predicted that the further we retreat from a shared religion, the more contenders would emerge to harness our spiritual energy. He called this the Nova Effect likening it to an explosion of religious pluralism. By the way, it, it's not, it doesn't originate with Charles Taylor. I mean, you go back to Ernst Becker, who wrote The Denial of Death, and he said the very first thing that people in the West will do when they stop believing in God in a gut-level sense is that they will turn the romantic partner into the, uh, uh, the object and target of religious devotion. And I, I love rom-coms as much as the next guy. But um, in fact, I, last night I realized just how much I love rom-coms. <laughs> They're so good. Uh, and they we don't make them anymore, uh, it seems like. Uh, but anyway, so uh, since I finished the book, it's been a little excruciating watching this Nova effect take place because I was like, I, I wrote about this. I want people to, 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 to read my take, you know? I want to be justified myself in what I've been working on. I want to be enough. And with each successive article and each successive phenomenon, I felt like I've been scooped, even though the truth is public domain and I have no more claim on it than anyone. But let's go through a few things that happened. The week that I turned in the manuscript, Tara Isabella Burton wrote an article for Vox called uh, uh, CrossFit is My Church. Maybe you read it. It's a great article. And it, it interviewed a bunch of young people and older people who said that they find the community and the meaning and the ritual, and in fact, the sense of transcendence in terms of the zone, they find that at CrossFit. And that's why gyms are packed on Sunday mornings in a lot of the country and churches aren't. But in that article, they reference a guy of Harvard Divinity School named Caster, Casper, um, excuse me, Casper Tercule. I'm probably saying that wrong. But he has this amazing line. He says that today, meaning-making is a growth industry. Meaning-making, so if you really want to sell people on breakfast cereal, it, make sure they know that they are sort of uh, doing something good by buying it. If you watch a lot of the commercials that we, you know, from razors to, uh, you know, bananas, you, we are being marketed to because we're so, we're so starving for meaning. And, uh, you know, uh, marketing agencies have figured that out. Andrew Sullivan, the great essayist, in December 7th, 2018, he wrote an article called America's New Religions. 
in which he talked, he said, politics, partisan politics is our new religion. He said, religious impulses once anchored in and tamed by Christianity, tamed, find expression in various political cults. These political manifestations of religion are new and crude, as all cults have to be. And he talks about religious cults on the left and on the right. He says, like almost all new cultish impulses, they demand a total and immediate commitment to save the world. They are filling the void that Christianity once owned, but without any of the wisdom and culture and restraint that Christianity once provided. Now just spend some time on corners of the internet, and you will see that people have come to think that politics not only explains absolutely everything about the world, but it can fix everything about the world. And that is why we don't talk about it at you know, cocktail parties. It's totalizing in the same way that religion is often uh, thought to be. February this year, Derek Thompson, writing in the Atlantic Monthly, wrote a wonderful column called Workism is Making Americans Miserable, in which he said that the economists of the early 20th century did not foresee that work might evolve from a means of material production into a means of identity production. For the college-educated elite, at least in this country, it would morph into a kind of religion, work, workaholism, careerism, Work, the office promising you identity, transcendence, and community. He, I love this. He says, for today's workists, anything short of finding one's vocational soulmate means a wasted life. And I work with undergraduates at the University of Virginia, and I watch as the anxiety they feel in their fourth year that they have to get it right. If they don't make if that first move, if they make the wrong move, then the rest of their life is at stake. And because they're so defined by uh, their work, or they've so been told that that's the, the primary uh, marker of righteousness. The problem with this gospel that your dream job is out there, so never stop hustling, is that it's a blueprint for spiritual and physical exhaustion. Long hours don't make anybody more productive or creative. They make people stressed, tired, and bitter. Right? And then, of course, there's this past month, the great gimme, at least for me personally, of the college admissions scandal, <laughs> which revealed that to more and more Americans, the, the college admissions process represents the ultimate measure of personal and social value, of what some would call upper middle class righteousness. An acceptance letter to the right college uh, constitutes a judgment of near religious significance. And that helps explain, I think, why someone might commit felonies in order to circumvent a university's front door. Actions like those reflect a society in which success, not goodness, has become our highest virtue, and maybe it always has been. Make no mistake, any scheme where salvation is reserved for those with the most impeccable track records is a religious scheme. It may be unconscious, but that only makes the dynamics involved more dangerous. But it, those are sort of like the, the easy ones, and those are the ones I talk about in the book. The, what we're going to see in these next 10 to 15 years, so probably 50 to 100 years, we're going to start to see wackier, and the no, as the Nova effect takes greater place, it's going to get more and more bizarre. So Cosmopolitan Magazine, that great bastion of wonderful journalism, <laughs> did a lengthy feature on an organization uh, in uh, Colorado called Weed Church which is exactly what you think it is. It's, it's a bunch of uh, mainly younger people, but also older people seeking community and transcendence around 
uh, the smoking of marijuana. And you interview, the interview, you can't help, you know, it makes sense. I, these people that feel alone and they feel starved for something that will take them out of themselves, out of the, the skull-sized kingdoms of their own brains. And so they found something that does that for them. And uh, I watched a documentary last week on flat earthers. Do you know about this movement? Are there, I, I, okay, so if there are any flat earthers in here, just hold your tongue till kingdom come, basically. But the, um, God loves you. Uh, there's, the flat earth movement is fascinating. And you watch this documentary as these, there's been a huge resurgence of people who believe the earth is flat, that we're actually living in a dome. Um, like that Stephen King book. Um, and, uh, but what you find is that they're actually not that interested. They're interested in the science and they're interested in sort of free thinking, but what they're really interested in is there are a bunch of outcasts who've never felt like they belonged and they found a church, a place where they feel accepted, a place where they feel known, a place where they're caught up in a cause larger than themselves and you cannot blame, you have that, all the compassion in the world because everything else seems to have rejected them and failed them. And it's a, it's a group of the last, the least, the little, and the lost that is really touching, actually, in the final analysis. But it's only going to get stranger, okay? It's only going to get stranger. You'll notice that all these strands of seculosity that I've just described, they operate more or less identically. And this, is the, this, is the, this is the reason I wrote the book. It's because they're all what we would call religions of law. This is what replacement religions are. They project a vision of enoughness and then implore us to realize that vision with grit and hard currency. And if we don't, well, medicate yourself into oblivion. Religions of law succeed in the short term because they appeal to our yearning for control, but they run out of steam eventually when confronted with the realities of human conflictedness. Human limitation. Replacement religions, in other words, they all turn to dust. I wish they didn't, because I want people not to be so anxious and tired and lonely. I want there to be... Uh, I, I wish religions of grace were, were, were hanging on trees, and that's not a pun. Uh, but it doesn't seem to work that way. Religions, replacement religions of law turn to dust under the burden of human suffering. In the light of sin and death, they look not just damaging, but incredibly lame. Because they cannot handle the fact that you can tell people what to do, but they won't do it. In fact, you can tell people what to do. You, you, can, you, can, you can show them why they should do it. But they seem to, you and I, seem to have some flaw, some glitch in the matrix, which keeps you know, pulling the wheel left. We're pulling the wheel right. It's no accident, though, that the core of the Christian story, of, of Jesus' life and work, his death and resurrection, it dovetails so well with the human dilemma of not enoughness that propels so much of our seculosity. This is one of the reasons why I'm a, I would call myself a reformational Christian, because it, it puts justification by, uh, you know, justification by grace through faith at the very core of what it means to be a, a, a believer in God. Someone who has been given the gift of righteousness that is driving so much, that yearning for it, is driving so much of our, of our, of our striving and our suffering. So, I don't think it's a, it's a coincidence 
that this lies actually at the heart of what Paul talks about and what Jesus sort of embodied. The announcement that your guilt has not only been managed by another, but atoned for and absolved. That, my friends, is the only viable future of guilt management. And again, I, I often wish there were other, other places to go. What, is, what does Peter say? Lord, to who, who else should we go? I end the book by saying, uh, quoting Walker Percy, who says, what else is there? William Blake once said that mercy is the golden chain by which society is bound together. So without that golden chain of mercy, no wonder we're fraying at the seams. The mercilessness is eating us all alive. Now I'll give you one, uh, two little lessons that I'm trying to draw from the book that I don't put in the book, but then, uh, then I'll read the second part of this phone story. This lens of seculosity, I believe, takes the air out of our self-importance. It, it provides an enormous uh, opportunity for laughter and humility because we are all caught, the, the, the attempts to justify ourselves according to the world's understanding of enoughness look absurd. And every single thing I wrote about in the book is stuff that, that I, in, in places which I am a co-religionist. You'll notice that the, it describes of someone of my demographic completely. A young parent, who clearly likes to eat food, who is um, uh, caught up in uh, romance and has gone through the dating uh, pool and has people around him who is just so focused on politics. Uh, these are not things that you could say I'm a Christian and therefore I'm not a person engaged in seculosity. In fact, the opposite is true. In fact, the church has kind of come to resemble, I think, its secular proxies a lot more than vice versa. But we can laugh. And one of the reasons I love these conferences is it's a time to laugh with you. Time to poke fun. It's Hypocrites Anonymous, you know? It's like the International League of the Guilty. That's where we are. Where we don't, we have no claim that we are living consistently. We are all described correctly by Paul in Romans 7. But this lens of seculosity, I think, also reconfigures in a helpful way our anxiety, the Christian anxiety about the diminishing relevance and plausibility of Christianity in the context of sort of rising numbers of decreasing numbers of church attenders and rising increases of nuns and duns. We don't have to find those things so threatening. And we can, in fact, see them as an opportunity for creativity and compassionate ministry. Because religion, it turns out, is not nearly as weird as we sometimes fear it is. It's, it just, it's, it all depends on what kind of religion you're talking about. Seculosity really is a wow, we're all in the same boat together kind of idea. It draws us closer together with our neighbors, with our loved ones, by showing how we are working with similar impulses and we're subject to the similar emotional behavior patterns. In other words, ultimately, we are all in need of the same grace. Nine months after switching to a flip phone, I went back to a smart one. What got me in the end wasn't the web itself, but music and text messages. Those were the rationalization, in any case. I realized about a month into the experiment that I wasn't willing to live in a world where music wasn't mobile. I can't and refuse to live in a world uh, to, 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 to imagine traveling without a soundtrack. 
The last straw was when the CD player in my car broke, <laughs> leaving the auxiliary cable my only option for tunes. It was though the Lord himself had granted me plausible deniability. <laughs> Thus, I started carrying around my decommissioned iPhone in one pocket, the one not occupied by my flip phone, so that I could listen to music. It looked as ridiculous as it sounds. The fact that my colleagues uh, and loved ones wasted no time in bringing it to my attention. But texts were the other reason. Call me naive, but I hadn't realized how much I and everyone in my vicinity had come to rely on text messaging to communicate. We talked about this in, the, in the yesterday's Mockingcast, in fact. The flip phone could accomplish a basic message, sure. And the extra taps weren't the end of the world. They usually made people laugh. Remember that? Da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da. It, we've all tuned that out, but that was your life for about three years. Um, still, pretty much all non-essential texting was eliminated, and what texting I did do became extraordinarily economical. This wouldn't have been a problem even two years beforehand, but now it gave off the impression of impatience and even rudeness. People would ask me if I was okay, if, if I was upset about something. Why hadn't I responded to their message? Because I was about to see you. I found myself making excuses for my less than effervescent text etiquette, which is not exactly the most endearing position when you've just met someone or call yourself a minister of the gospel. So basically, my relationships began to suffer. Like a vegan on the 4th of July, I was the guy you had to plan around. The only difference is that today, people tend to be pretty accommodating of uh, dietary restrictions. But that address or that picture you're trying to send me, would you mind emailing it instead? <laughs> oh, and forget about communicating with anyone under the age of 25. In short, my issue became everyone else's. It wasn't just car stereos that had moved on. The hope for those stuck in the seculosity of technology and the seculosity of romance and the seculosity of busyness and the seculosity of leisure and productivity and the seculosity of uh, politics and the seculosity of food isn't hope that turns a blind eye to those things that make our smartphones uh, and the internet such a desolate landscape. It is hope that accounts for and addresses them. It is hope in the reality of a God who does not abandon his creatures to their compulsions, prideful or otherwise. A God who we are told gave up control for the sake of an embittered, exhausted world who did not come to be served but to serve and to make a definitive break with the endless cycle of condemnation and justification. This God... I have found is not put off by our stubborn attempts to secure on our own steam that which is given freely. But through forgiveness grants people like me the assurance and therefore safety to experience their, head, their pain head on. The implications here are no less immediate than the technologies that seek to subvert them. According to theologian Ted Peters, once we realize we can get out of the business of justifying ourselves, the world suddenly looks different. No longer do we need to defend ourselves from a hostile world by identifying ourselves with what is good or just or true. We can live in the world, we can love the world as if it is our world with or without the lines we draw between good and evil. Perhaps 
This is the peace of mind evinced by Mary, who sat in rapt at Christ's feet, while her distracted sister Martha kept score and pleaded for Christ to do the same. He refused then, and he refuses now. You see, Martha did not need a smartphone to turn her into an exhausted, self-justifying wreck. Yet her failure to surrender control did not disqualify her for the one thing needful. In fact, it formed the doorway through which Christ reached out to her. So who knows? To the extent that seculosity and distraction is killing us and we're too distracted to notice, it may be bringing us into contact with the divine in a way that no amount of carefully chosen, quietly contemplated words can. Because the God who dwells in silence does not exist independent of the noise, nor is he waiting for you and me to calm our own storms. Miraculous as it may sound, I've even heard he has a predilection for hopeless rationalizers and their hypocritical friends. I read it online, so it has to be true. That's the end of my, my talk about seculosity, but I, we have, I think about, uh, I could take questions for about uh, 10 minutes, because this is really fun to talk about. Does anyone have a comment or a question they would like to, to bring up? There is a, there, the, 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 what you said is technology adds to the hopelessness of the sort of misery loves company, and that's very true. You know, we live in, when you talk about self-justification being a core impulse of the human creature, uh, the internet is perfectly designed for that because we can, we can create filter bubbles, we can create affinity groups that we never have to step out of, and here... Loneliness because of texting. There's no human And loneliness. And loneliness, social media. I don't. Th I think we're just coming to uh, realize the t mental health cost of all this. But th the book is not supposed to be an alarmist manifesto against modern technology because you know what, Mockingbird wouldn't exist without it. We wouldn't have. Uh, we wouldn't. The, the texting we talked about yesterday actually keeps people in touch with each other in a wonderful way. It's it, but it is the current manifestation of what is called justification by works of the law, which is was a dead end then, and is a dead end now. It kills. It 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 actually it, it's a curse. It's a curse, and we're watching. I, I live under that curse, just like you do. I'm not a, I'm not above it, but I'm hoping Jesus is. Yes. Oh, thank you. I, my name is Amanda. I saw that one of the chapters is called The Psychulosity of Food. Mm -hmm. And I'm a size dignity activist, so I help people in larger bodies discuss, like, advocate for themselves, mm. including myself. I'm, and I use the term fat as a neutral descriptor for my body. Um, I'm flipping through your chapter. I got a little nervous because I saw you do use the word fat. Mm -hmm. um, my, my question is... How, how do we avoid making the size of our body the results, right? The show that we're not overemphasizing this. Because I saw a paragraph where you talk about how you need to change your, how you take a month and cut out stuff. And you even made a fat joke earlier about eating too much. Mm. And um, that marginalizes people like me. And so I just wanted to ask if you'd considered reframing that around love of God and neighbor rather than the size of your belly or um, the, the clothes that you're, you know, that, that sure. kind of. Sure. 
No, that's a beautiful statement. I think what, the reason I talk about it, I think that fat is the, um, the reason you, you, what you just said is so important is because fat has become the worst curse word, one of the worst things you could say about a person. And that is, means that we have moralized body image and body weight into a sense that is totally out of line with, I think, uh, you know, St. Paul says, food will not bring you closer to God. And um, the reason I talk about it is uh, so much is because I see so much um, guilt and shame around this. And so that's why it, it has, thin has become a secular religion. And that's why your work is so important. So it's, um, there is a, there, there's, I quote this woman, Lindy Weston there, who is so great about this very thing. She's like, basically, I was being told um, that I was always just a, uh, I was, I was, I was, I could never accept myself because I always had to be on the road to becoming a different person. I was just, a, I was, what she said, I was just a person who had failed to be thin. And um, food is, is, uh, the, the, I really try to, I mean, if you read the chapter, I do everything I can not to reinforce shame while also being a true to my own actual, I mean, I'm living in a, uh, certainly in a, in a place in Charlottesville that's an upper middle class context in which the tiniest fluctuations in weight are felt even that more, as very acutely. And so how do I be authentic to my own sense of shame around that sort of thing without, um, I can't take a, responsibility for other people's, but I look at the way that we think about food, and we think about it in terms of, we, we, what I say in there is that we talk about, uh, I begin by, you know, with the Jim Gaffigan stuff about how he was more ashamed to be seen by someone at McDonald's than he is to be seen getting a prostitute <laughs> in his context. And that is screwed up. That is, I mean, because clearly a lot of people are eating at McDonald's. And then I also talk about how the last time you used the word cheat, it was almost definitely in relation to a diet rather than a spouse. That when you think about good and bad, we don't think about healthy and unhealthy. We think about, I've been good, I had a salad. I've been bad, I had a brownie. And that is, that is the, um, that weight um, of condemnation is I don't really think it's a, it's a biblical category. And so I'm in, 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 in the book, I'm trying to sort of go there, because um, I also know that so many people deal with it, and it makes me very sad, so. Yes? I'm wondering if you have an idea of why so many temporary people are so bereft of meaning in their life, that they're trying to find groups to belong to, and you know, just all the fallout from that. Why are so many contemporary people bereft of meaning? Yeah. I mean, I think they're alive, and they're sensitive, and they're um, scared and they're afraid of death and they're just like you and me. I think that uh, I think that some in some senses the church really has failed in a lot of ways. I don't think the gospel has failed. I don't think Jesus Christ has failed. But I think that there is um, stuff that we've been hearing about people that would uh, the last place they would go with their guilt and shame today is the church. And when when I when I think that it has that hasn't been true in my own personal life. And I hope it. I've see. I meet tons of people for whom that's not true, but it's. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think that yes. I think the technology is making us. It's it's legitimately making us lonelier. Um, the dynamics involved aren't fresh. It's just that the the venue for uh, self justification used to get a you know, uh, 
a Christmas card once a year to see how beautiful your friend's children were. <laughs> and uh, now you get it every five seconds. That's going to have an effect on people. It's not that the desire to prove and to... Yeah. yeah. So, uh, Question. Um, long time listener, first time caller. Um, <laughs> so I'm thinking about the ways people try to justify themselves. I think clothing and music style and sort of the identity that you adopt. Are you a Hot Topic person? Are you a J. Crew person? Are you a whatever you may be? Um, and all the, all the things that kind of come along with that. And then I think about people that are rejecting all the pressure to be cool and to fit in and to be part of a group. So there's the norm core kind of um, reaction against that where we're going to dress as nerdy and as much like Kip from uh, Napoleon Dynamite as possible. Um, and just, you know, baggy khaki pants like you work at Blockbuster in the 90s. And, but then that becomes its own standards by which we can judge a new group of people. So there seems to be no escape from this. And I'm curious, in, in your reading and research and observation of people, and you travel widely and um, think about this stuff, are there places where you see, and I'm not, I'm not looking for the church answer, because I think this is just as much in the churches as it is other places, but are there places where you've seen people that tend to maybe be a little bit freer and maybe a little less self-conscious and a little less wrapped up in the self-justification exhaustion project? Yes. Uh, it's always people who've suffered. It's always, that's why AA is like this. In a lot of churches, when you, it, it's because people have been crushed by their attempts, and they will be crushed again. But I think that if you, if, if you could find a, a group of people who've, who've, who've really been defeated, you know, the, the, we, we talked about it on the Mockingcast one time about how China now has a social credit system where um, if you basically don't pay enough attention to your parents or you default on a loan, you get put on a public list and your picture gets put in the middle of the, it's, it's like The Handmaid's Tale or something, but it, it's happening. And it's um, in the middle of town. And this, they, they interviewed this co-worker who had defaulted on a loan or something like that. And he said that he's not accepted in polite society anymore, but he's gotten to know all the other people on the list, and they have a lot of fun together. Yeah, I, it's funny. So I was thinking the same thing, but I just... We were talking this morning, actually, um, I'm staying with this sweet family from this church about just different times that we've had suffering in our lives and how there's been so much relief in that because you suddenly can't do the stuff that you feel like you have to do. So like Harvey for our family in Houston was like when that happened, um, it felt like all of the like BS requirements of suburbia. Um, nobody had the energy for anymore. And it was like this bizarre gift out of, you know, what was a really traumatic experience. So, I don't know. I just felt like I needed to say That's that. That's beautiful. Yeah. I'll take one more question right here. Yes, what's your recommendation for people whose religion problem is overachieving? Or doing too much, and I'm, that's my problem, and that's why I'm. Asking. Well, busyness—I um, don't have to give a recommendation because the culture of busyness will ultimately kill you. <laughs> um, it, you the wheels—you'll end up in the hospital or medicated into some sort of fog. Um, this is the the hope of the book is not to give you a new approach to do this, a new another new religion to fail at. Okay. <laughs> The hope of the book is that 
um, the wheels are coming off the bus, and it might be that they're, they're coming off the bus a little faster in every one of these ways. Uh, you are going, you are being driven to your knees. And I sometimes find tremendous hope in the fact that how much more can a person fit in in their life in the 21st century? How much more can we be doing? I, I say, you know, the, the joke is that the, 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 the title of the book says what to do about it, and it's a total bait and switch because if you get to the end, it says doing is the problem. But me telling you not to isn't going to change a thing. What's going to change a thing is when you come to the end of the rope, and that is where God is. So I have a tremendous hope in that the extent to which uh, our cultural forces and the, the law that we've externalized in all sorts of um, kind of, you know, frankly, slightly perverted ways, um, I think it is, uh, if, if, if the screws tighten enough, you, their human limitation will come out. No one, will, there is no pure candidate that we're ever going to find for any party. There is no perfect, there is no enough that we can engender on our own. And the more, it, you know what I mean? It's like, a, it's a hope in death and resurrection, which I believe is our Christian hope anyway. And so that's what the hope of the book is, not a new, 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 new suggestion. So it's 10.15, and I should stop talking. There's a lot more in it. I really, I'm happy to sign your book since, since you now all have them. Um, I, I could do that during the breaks or something. But thank you for listening. Yeah.